Alyssa is a multiracial, queer, autistic activist who is also an author and an educator. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Living My Best Disabled Life. Today, we have Lauren Melissa. Hi. Hi. Thanks nice. for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I know you're autistic, and I was just wondering, because like I know it's a spectrum, how does it specifically present in you? That's an interesting question. So autism is a spectrum in the sense that it's more like a prism than a linear line from more autistic to less autistic, right? So we have different autistic traits and each autistic person has their own experiences with each of these individual traits, for example, sensory experiences, social experiences, And then even within that, autism is a dynamic disability. So my personal experience of autism changes from day to day. So I guess to answer your question of how autism presents itself in me, I mean, it presents in every facet of my being. To me, being autistic and being myself are intrinsically interwoven. So... Autism presents itself in me through everything that I do. But if you're asking for my autistic traits, that would maybe be put on a traits list, then I can say that, you know, I passed the evaluation. So I have all the autistic traits. (laughs) I have social communication differences. I have special interests. I have sensory differences. And yes, I do STEM as well. I think that I am very much wholly autistic. So if you have an idea of maybe a specific trait you would like me to talk more in depth about, I could. Otherwise, I might need to like draw a full diagram. (laughs) No, it was just more of a general question. It didn't have to be like, because like, I get what you're saying. So it's like the way you like, it's part of you. So you don't like, (laughs) no any different way like it's just the way you are so being yourself and being autistic is the same thing so yeah I get what you're saying and then like what age were you diagnosed are you one of those people who were diagnosed as a child or were you one of those like people who didn't find out they were autistic till they were like an adult so I know that's pretty common now right I am one of the people that was diagnosed as an adult. I was diagnosed at age 23. That being said, I always knew that I was different. It wasn't like I didn't know that there was something different about me or that I just expressed and felt and experienced life differently. It was that my diagnosis was missed due to stereotypes of autistic individuals, one, not usually being perceived or represented as people of color or as girls. But my mom actually thought that I was autistic, that I am autistic. When I was very young, in early childhood, before I even started kindergarten, she considered the possibility. But At that time, autism was very much confused with 
intellectual disability. And of course, there are autistic folks with intellectual disabilities, but there are also autistic folks without intellectual disabilities. And since I went to kindergarten and I did well academically, my mom, through misinformation, thought that that meant that I could not be autistic. And so from that day forward, I went without a diagnosis or without support. And then I found out when I was 23 and it was definitely a very happy discovery for me and allowed me to really understand myself and my life experiences and to shape a future for myself where I could be wholly autistic. Yeah, that's super interesting because actually like I'm not diagnosed autistic, but my mom has always thought I was autistic. And like I'm getting tested in the next few weeks to get like an official diagnosis. But because I have like a bunch of other things going on, they melded them all together. And they were like, oh, there's no way she's autistic because of certain things about me. So I get what you're saying with the whole, there's like a stereotype of of autistic people and that people think, oh, like they can only be a certain way. Right. And people have a difficult time thinking of autism as a neurotype. And then if autism is a neurotype, then there would be just as many different kinds of people as there are non-autistic people. And there is this mindset that autism presents a certain way with a very specific look even. And what's interesting and what you just mentioned to me is that autism has right? So this idea that autism looks a certain way, but then we also have this other side where people think that autism is more than just autism. They think it includes, oh, autism is intellectual disability. Oh, autism is dyspraxia. Oh, autism is these different things. And it can be hard sometimes to talk to someone about me being autistic because they don't see co-occurring conditions in me, but it's a co-occurring condition. It's not autism in and of itself. So I think that is very complex. And I think people struggle to understand this idea of disability and that disability is multifaceted and that's great, but it takes a lot, I guess, maybe too much brain power for some folks to really pin down. Yeah. maybe. And then you add like how society views like men on the spectrum versus women like people don't realize that it doesn't like not happen the same way but it's not like I don't know I'm losing my train of thought do you know what I mean yes I know what you mean so kind of like (laughs) is autism present differently in men versus women is autism is there female autism and male autism like I think that this is a big commonly talked about topic nowadays And I think it's very interesting because one, I wouldn't have been diagnosed later in life if I hadn't found a traits list for autism in women. Like that really opened my mind to different kinds of autism, different kinds, quote unquote, kinds of autism, or more just like a diversity of ways that autistic traits do manifest. What do you think the biggest misconception with that is like? the biggest misconception in terms of like how it presents itself 
mm. in women so, versus men. So I was actually going to say that I think recently this has been moving beyond the conversation of male autism, female autism, because there are men who have quote unquote female autism and women who have quote unquote male autism. So it doesn't really quite make sense that there would just be like this, well, you're assigned this sex. So that means you have this kind of autism. And what we're finding more is that it's not that autism is necessarily different for girls and women. It's that girls and women are taught to mask their autism from a very young age with much more enforcement than boys because of that boys will be boys mentality and girls are tend to be given more directives. Yeah. So I would say that the biggest, there's so many misconceptions about. Well, if you were going to choose like one, maybe one or two. Yeah. I would say that it's probably that autistic girls are easier than autistic boys. That's a big thing. It's like, oh, the autistic girls, they're shy and they're easy to get along with. And you just, you know, they'll do what you want, which is really, really concerning for a lot of reasons. But I think that there is so much going on beneath the surface of, say, there is an autistic woman who is shy or reserved. There's so much going on underneath the surface. And to just write them off as being an easy autistic in school, oh, they're so much easier, is really dangerous. And yeah, we could go on and on about the implications of that. Yeah, you could like probably have a whole podcast on just misconceptions of like autism in general. Oh, yes, (laughs) definitely. There are many misconceptions that you know, thankfully, due to the internet and social media and connecting autistic communities, connecting us with one another, we're able to start to shed light onto autistic experiences all around the spectrum. And the more that we can take ownership of our own stories, I think the faster that we can work to undo a lot of the damage that's been done through stereotyping and misconceptions. I'm curious to know, like, when did you, or was there a moment when you're like, I really want to get into advocacy? I know you're like, you have a lot of different avenues of advocacy if you uh, really get into it. But like, when were you like, oh, I want to start advocating on social media. I want to start writing about it. I want to, you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally know what you mean. So I'll make this as brief as possible, but we'll see what happens. So I got into social justice work when I was still in high school and I was really passionate about what was at the time Prop 8 in California and it was trying to like overturn gay marriage in California. And so I decided to get into activism and protest in the streets for that. And then I went into undergrad for college and in undergrad, I continued to work in LGBTQ activism through our Queer Straight Alliance. And I worked as like communications and eventually as president of the Queer Straight Alliance. And after that, I was working in education activism and trying to like foster 
educational equity. And then around that time is when I received my autism diagnosis. And I was very thrilled to finally have discovered who I am. And I mean, my identity is multifaceted, but to discover the autistic part of my identity. At the same time, I was a little or a lot upset that it had been missed for so long. I have a very interesting history with mental health and struggles, and we don't need to go into all of that, but it was very complex. And I have a lot of co-occurring conditions due to much of the trauma that I experienced as an undiagnosed autistic person. And I thought it's quite unfair that my diagnosis was missed because of these stereotypes and because of lack of access. And I'm not one to stay in a place of, I guess, upset and resentment for very long. And so what I did was I took those feelings of frustration and I decided that I would share, well, there are some positive things I've been doing for myself, being autistic, some autistic-centered coping skills that I have that I feel are have been helpful and healthy for me. So I thought, why don't I just talk to some folks about that, share some of the things that have been working for me that weren't harming me, but were actually helping me. And I can use social media for that. And this will be a way for me to reclaim my narrative and connect with this community that I'm a part of. So that was how it started. It just started with me wanting to share healthy coping skills with other autistics and learn from other autistics. And at this point, it's grown a lot from there. <laughs> I know, like, you're an activist, an author, a writer, all that. How do you manage all that? Like, this just sounds like a lot of stuff going on at once. And then you're running, you have a really, like, well-known, like, social media presence, too. And, like, I don't know, just thinking about it, just as, like, to have all of that, like, sounds a little, like, overwhelming. And I was just wondering, like, how do you manage all that? Like, even, I don't want to say, like, as an autistic person, but I know, like, because, like, people who are on the spectrum are usually, like, you know, some of them, they have to have, like, I don't know about you, but, like, they have to have, like, a schedule kind of thing, and they just, like, a lot of planning or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Thanks for highlighting that. It is really... It is a lot. I do my social media, activism. I sometimes work for and present for other organizations. I have a full-time job and I am an author of young adult fiction. So it does become a lot. I'm not going to pretend like it's not a lot and that there aren't days where I am exhausted, but I do keep a planner. Oh, yes. I'm very dependent on my planner. And if I don't have my phone planner with me, it doesn't exist. Like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do unless I see it in my planner. And that includes this podcast. (laughs) So it has to be there. And if it's not there, it's gone. And I get tired. And one thing that I really have to tell myself to do very frequently is take naps. I take naps all day. 
I take multiple naps in a day because my brain just, it just stops functioning. I guess there's no other way to really say it. It just gets tired. And I run away from social situations a lot, not like actual (laughs) running anymore, but I'll be talking to someone and I'll just be like, this was great. And then I'll just walk away and go to recharge. I listen to my special interests music all the time to motivate me. If I need to get some work done and I'm tired, if I need to write, I put on some music, I stim, I'll stim and stim, and then I'll like get into what I need to do. But everything that I'm doing is centered around things that I'm passionate about. And I think that that is really key because if I was doing all this stuff about something I didn't care about, that I didn't have a passion or a special interest related thing with it, I don't think it would be possible. You put me in front of an activity that has nothing to do with my interests, say something as benign even as just doing the dishes, it's going to be really hard to get me to do it. I have whole things to try to get myself to do chores that I do. And even taking a shower, like it is really hard for me to take a shower. So I think it just happens to be that the work I do is stuff that I love to do and that I'm passionate about. So it's actually a lot easier for me to step into that than to step into the shower. <laughs> it's kind of like a thing if if you like what you do as a job, what was it, that you never work a day in your life or something? Like if you're enjoying it, and it's something that you are passionate about, then you don't feel like you still get burnt out, but you don't feel like it's really work. Yeah. And I do want to say it is work. It is. I wish I could say I just love working all the time. But of course, there are days when I just can't. And I think, honestly, part of it for me has been, and I'm still working on this, I'm still learning how to do this. But recognizing when I have hit a limit and instead of pushing through it, taking a day off, taking one day off will increase my ability to refocus in on my passions so much faster than trying to push through it. If I can just pause and give my body and my brain the rest that it's telling me it needs, then it's kind of like the difference between a small stem and a big stem. Like a big stem is going to really recharge me so much faster than like lightly tapping my fingers together in a small stem. So taking a full day off is going to help me recharge a lot faster than taking a 10 minute break. Right. And so recognizing that I just need to take a break for my brain. I don't have to actually be sick with the flu to take a day off and recharge. It's a really good point because I feel like a lot of people think that like, oh, uh, when you take a break, oh, you have to be, you need a mental break too, not just physical breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way I found you was actually because I was looking on Cripple Media and looking at the writers and then like I was, like I emailed everyone else <laughs> that worked for Cripple Media. So I was just wondering, how did you like start with them? And how did you like discover them? And Emily Flores reached out to me. Emily Flores is like the founder of Cripple Media. And I honestly think that because I do so much writing 
on my Instagram and I did some writing for neuroplastic. I think that's how Emily kind of found me and was like, oh, this person can write. Like, let me email her. So she reached out to me and asked me if I would be interested in being an editor for Cripple. I think that they had an opening for a new editor. And I looked at the site and I had heard of it. And I thought that, oh, this is a very important you know, site, a very important community. And so I agreed to join the editor team. And that's really how it happened. That's how I got started with them. I really love the experience of working for Cripple. I feel that it offers a space for young adult and new adult disabled folks to really say what they want to say and say it without fear and say it loud for others to hear. And I appreciate it as a space and I'm glad that it exists and that it's continuing and moving forward. Yeah, I just found it maybe like six months ago or something. And I didn't even know it existed, but I really feel like we need so much more of those like spaces in the world because a lot of times the able-bodied people are writing about the disabled people. Not like you don't hear a lot of like first person things, like first hand accounts. It, I mean you do somewhat, but not in an entire not in an entire media company based on just other disabled people, like ran by other disabled people. Yes, it does sometimes feel like disabled stories are told by non-disabled people or they're told by people who over quote unquote overcame a disability or it can also feel like as a disabled person myself that you know people have said to me can you write for us or can you do a speaking gig for us and I'll say oh sure like I'll mention maybe like compensation or something like that and they'll be like oh the you're getting paid by us giving you a platform. And I've thought that, gosh, that's really, really messed up. Yeah, it's really harsh. <laughs> and so I think that there's a whole wonderful thing where disabled folks can come together and try to build it themselves instead of having other people say, oh, we'll give you a piece of the pie, but you better say please. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of to still be done but I mean it is a good start you know Mm -hmm. so back to all your different avenues of advocacy and stuff what is your what do you think your favorite part about just being able to advocate in so many different so using so many different avenues and so much intersectionality because it's not just the disability community. It's not just the autistic community. What is like your favorite part about being able to be a voice for those people? So I think one of the things you're maybe trying to get at is like, what are your intersecting identities and how does that play into the work that you do? And so I am Black multiracial I am queer. I identify as queer and asexual. And I am autistic and I have chronic pain disabilities as well. So yeah, there's a lot going on in 
my identity. Those are just a few. <laughs> and I am very, very happy that when I am invited into disability spaces, I can bring in just through the nature of me being more complexity to the conversation. A lot of conversation about disability is thought of as like a white conversation and race, queerness, those sorts of things often get divorced from the conversation. And I think that that is for different reasons. For example, queerness is often not involved in the conversations around disability because disabled folks are already not thought to be sexual humans. Like they're stereotyped as like non-sexual because they're disabled, which is really problematic and extremely false. And people of color are already underrepresented. So it would make sense that they would also be underrepresented in the disability community. And also much of the conversation in the disability community requires wealth. And many people, at least in the United States, who are people of color do not have access to the same wealth and resources as white folks. So I'm very glad that I can bring these conversations and that's just the tip of the iceberg into the disability conversation. And I've been able to do so through multiple encounters, be it having talks about autism and intersectionality. Like I've been on panels where I got to discuss it, or it can just be on my Instagram, making a post where I bring it up, where I just bring it up in, as a topic of conversation. I think another area that I am glad that I get to bring it into is in my writing. Whenever I write fiction, I tend to write about people of color just because I am a person of color and I grew up around people of color all the time. So I tend to write about people of color and talk about these topics of neurodiversity and queerness through characters that aren't white. And I hope that we can have more stories like that just so that young people and adults can have access to stories of people who look like them and grew up like them. Yeah, I love that, the way you said that. Like, I really think it is really important for, like, everyone to feel heard or represented. And sometimes if people aren't, like, if not a lot of people are writing about this or talking about this or anything, then you feel like you're, like, the outsider in the world if you're not, if you don't have the opportunity to feel heard through something you read or something you see or something. Yeah, I think that being a part of a marginalized community already makes someone in a lot of cases feel like an outsider. So then when you have multiple intersections of identity, what happens to a person like myself, Black, multiracial, disabled and queer, when I enter queer spaces? or disability spaces, or spaces for people of color. I often feel in each of these spaces, like I am on the outside of something because of these intersections. And I don't want it to end there with me feeling like I'm on the outside. And I 
personally have the capacity to advocate and do activism around that sort of thing. There are times in my life where it would have been way too exhausting. So I say it's not necessarily our responsibility, like as in the people on the margins of the margins to be the educators, but I'm grateful. Yeah, for I kind of I kind of don't <laughs> like the fact that people think that just because we're disabled, just because we're part of marginalized groups, that we have to be the only people that like are educating people. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. We need allies too, but we hopefully will have allies who are listening to us and not speaking over us. It's a hard balance to strike. Yeah, because like, I mean, people could be allies, but they claim they're allies. There's like, there are some people that just talk over the disabled community but claim they're allies. But so to wrap it up, I was wondering... Like, what kind of advice would you give your younger self? Like, if yourself now would be able to give your younger self some advice or something you wish you knew, what would that be? It can be Uh, any type of advice, but just whatever, like, comes to mind at first. Yeah, I'm going to start with something small and then explain what I mean by it. So... As overdone as it sounds, I would have told myself to be myself. And like, I know people say it to kids and young adults a lot, be yourself, but they don't actually mean that. I don't know why people pretend to tell kids and young adults to be themselves because it's very clear that they're actually saying be yourself, but not like that. (laughs) And I think as a kid, I wasn't actually ever even told to be myself. Everybody was telling me what to be and giving me directives and trying to change me away from the strange, unique, eccentric, autistic person that I am. And I spent so much of my life, my young life, trying to be someone else in order to gain acceptance, masking so hard, hiding stems, hiding the fact that I was in pain all the time, hiding my interests and the things I was passionate about, just hiding, 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 hiding in order to gain even one friend who usually wouldn't even stick around for more than a year. So I would say to my younger self, screw it. Just take that time and do what you want to do and embrace your strangeness and embrace your passions and your special interests and your stems because no one's going to be accepting of a fake you. So why don't you just enjoy yourself <laughs> and embrace the real you? I think that would have been so liberating. And now I try to follow that mindset for myself. And it's not easy, but it's a lot easier to do that than it was to completely bury who I really am. So now thinking about like what advice you would give yourself, how do you think you're now living your best disabled life in this mindset that you wish that you had when you were younger? I think that there are two things that I've been working on recently to, I guess, live my best disabled life, which is a cute phrase. But I think that 
one of the things that I've been doing is I've tried to stop scripting my conversations as much. So artistic folks, we often struggle with social communication and the neurotypical sense. And without realizing it, and sometimes with realizing it, I have a bunch of pre-planned conversations in my head. So that way I can hopefully navigate a social conversation without making so-called social mistakes. And I realized that in doing this, I had been entering and exiting conversations by saying things that I didn't mean, but just saying what I thought was expected of me. And once I realized I was doing this, I realized it was harming my own sense of personal integrity. So a huge thing I've been working on recently is to stop jumping to the scripts and give myself actual processing time to talk. I used to think that I had to respond to people at lightning speed. And now I say, they can wait 10 seconds for me to think of my answer. Like, and I want my answer to be my answer and not what they expect from me. That's been a big thing that's been helping me live my best life right now. And it's been helping me have so much less anxiety and fear around socializing. Also, it allows me to feel more proud of who I am and know that I'm saying what I mean instead of what other people want me to say. And I think the second thing that I've been doing to live my best life has been setting boundaries. And that includes boundaries with other people, but also setting boundaries for myself to myself and saying, you know what? You're pushing yourself too hard. (laughs) You need to let yourself go. You need to relax, set a boundary for myself to myself. I think I can be my own worst critic, probably because I've heard so much criticism my whole life. So learning how to set boundaries with others and learning how to set my own boundaries for myself have been very, very helpful. I love that. I feel like everyone needs to set boundaries for themselves and with other people just because, you know, if you're overworking yourself, if you're pushing yourself too hard, you're not going to be the best version of yourself. Well, anyways, um, (laughs) thanks for coming and speaking to me on the podcast. This has been a great conversation. It's nice to meet you. And tune in next time, everyone, for Living the Best Disabled Life. Thank you.